You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. I want to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist, and I'd like to start off by introducing um, our, our guests uh, today. Um, uh, Yasmin, why don't you say, uh, say a word about yourself? Hi, my name is Asmin Aldobi. I'm uh, 26 and I'm a grad student at the Technical University of Munich, but um, I was born and raised in Bonn in the Nordrhein-Westfalia area. Okay. And Vanessa? Hi, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Um, my name is Vanessa Simpson, she, her pronouns. I'm currently working as a linguist on the translations team using both German and Spanish at Lidl US. Um, I have a little bit of background um, in community work from my um, experience in a local government office um, in Fairfax County. We did a lot of mobilization around uh, the COVID vaccine um, in Spanish and really targeted our Latino community to empower their voices and make sure um, resources were accessible. So um, this project has been exciting for me. I uh, studied abroad in the Ruhrgebiet and um, was glad to come back and get to know the history um, and the future a little bit better. And so for the why we are here, uh, I'm gonna turn to Susanna Deeper, my colleague at AICGS. She's our director of programs and grants. Uh, Susanna, uh, tell, us, uh, tell us in a sentence or two about this, uh, this program that uh, Yasmin and Vanessa uh, are part of and that we're gonna talk about in this episode. Yes, thank you, Jeff. This is part of the ASCGF's project on social divisions and questions of identity in the United States and Germany. It's a three-year program that brings together a group of Germans and Americans, different backgrounds to look at some of the underlying factors of the division and polarization both our societies have been experiencing. And those, of course, include social, demographic, economic, and geographic factors, as well as identity dynamics. And the program is funded by the ERP Transatlantic Program of the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And it aims to engender an honest and open exchange on some of the issues. And with this program, we hope to be able to cover, to offer compromise and solutions so that the existing divide can be somewhat narrowed or even closed. And the exchanges take place in smaller cities outside of major metropolitan areas. And the second year of the program, which uh, Vanessa and Yasmin are a part of, brings us to Dortmund in North Rhine-Westphalia in Germany and to Buffalo in, in upstate New York. And we just visited Dortmund a couple of weeks ago. And, it was originally supposed to take place last September, but because of the pandemic, we had to postpone and we'll be visiting Buffalo in June. Terrific. Um, and uh, I really like the connection that we make between um, cities in the United States and Germany that have at least uh, something in common and in which in, in also have uh, existing um, uh, relationships. Um, uh, so I, I want to start off by talking about economic transformation. And, and so Vanessa, um, 
I, I think the first place to start perhaps for our listeners is, you know, what is the Ruhrgebiet? Uh, why does it matter as a, as a, as a concept? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the Ruhrgebiet is an area, um, and Dortmund is um, in this area. It really was the heart of Germany's coal mining and steel industries. Um, and so um, this was, you know, a big source of income, um, a big uh, employer for the area. Um, part of, it became part of local identity. Um, and following World War II, um, this industry um, began to decline. Um, something that was so central to the region took a shift then to high tech industries and education. So, um, you know, when we visited, we took a look at, you know, what that meant um, to the area and, you know, where, where this is going, um, you know, what does it look like when we do shift from, um, you know, losing that momentum behind those industries and, and how do we memorialize um, what, you know, what used to be there and, and, um, you know, how do we grow something new out of that? Um, and this can be uh, compared to, this is why we're looking at our sister city uh, of Buffalo, because um, this idea of like, you know, a Rust Belt city, um, that we, you know, heard about the German word Rostalgie, which I thought was really funny was this, it's a play on words of rust and nostalgia. So um, a nostalgia for that um, rust era, industrial era. Um, and, you know, I'm excited to see what that um, looks like in Buffalo as well. Yeah. Um, okay. And so maybe to quantify a little bit, if we want to talk about um, either Dortmund or the, or the Ruhr uh, area, um, let's go a little deeper. What, what, what is, if we think about a transformation, um, what does that look like? I mean, one part in the contrast, if we, if we compare it to, um, some regions, for example, in the U.S., the best or the, the best example would be the Rust Belt. Um, if we look at the fact that the Ruhrgebiet was very much coal-centered, um, and it changed over the time to more, um, um, yeah, sustainable energies. Let's say it like that. And um, in some cases, very very similar to the Rust Belt, a lot of people actually lost their jobs. And in this aspect, um, the, the German government actually uh, gave coal subsidies to these areas, um, which actually helped at first. And it, uh, it gave people in the area the possibility to not basically rush into poverty. But what we can see today is that these subsidies weren't enough. Um, so we still have major issues such as poverty in the Ruhrgebiet, um, and there are economists who say Germany actually dealt with this issue very well because it focused way more on re-education programs, um, which did actually help a lot in the Ruhrgebiet. But at the same time, uh, it kind of neglected the, the wants and the needs of the people who lived there. So um, we will come to the political attitudes later on, but this is actually one of the major aspects that influenced the the political attitudes as well in that area. Mm -hmm. Thanks, thanks, Yasmin. Uh, so um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that, as you said, this has been a national 
uh, effort, the transition away from coal-generated uh, electricity. Uh, it's uh, back, in, back in the news in a way for two reasons. Uh, first, the, the German government, which took office in December, uh, agreed to accelerate the, the, the phase-out of coal-generated uh, electricity. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, the question of Germany's energy mix and its dependence on, um, on foreign sources of energy has you know, acquired a renewed political salience. Um, so uh, you know, this, uh, this, this question of the coal transition and of the industrial transition um, has many facets. Um, I'd be curious also to hear uh, observations or things that, uh, that stood out uh, during your time in Dortmund when we think about the transition to, I think, Vanessa, what you described as uh, the goal of, of uh, basing the economy of the future in the Ruhrgebiet on, on high-tech industry and on education. Um, where do you see that uh, having made progress or where do you see um, uh, challenges still remaining? Yeah, I think I want to pull a little bit towards um, some of what we discussed with uh, Dr. Ruth Schuler. Um, she's uh, working in the German Economic Institute, um, and they did a study to kind of get a um, feel for um, opinions and attitudes in the Ruhr region. Um, and so I think the bottom line outcome um, for this shift is kind of the new social adhesive, something they were talking about, um, and understanding like not only um, advances in science, ecology and mobility, but also this idea of culture. I think that's something um, when I think of this region that sticks out to me is this local identity piece, um, that there's a local pride at this kind of city level. It's no longer, you know, um, I'm an American, I'm a German, but it's you know, I'm from the Ruhrgebiet. And um, I think this is one of the strongest pieces that will, um, you know, bring this region forward. And um, ultimately, I think it has an attraction for tourists. And um, that's kind of, you know, how this development kind of takes foot, I think. Yasmin, anything you want to add to that? Or Susanna? Yeah, I was actually thinking about how I mean, we were talking about the initial shift away from coal towards clean energy and um, how the internal economic structures um, within Germany were already an issue with the reunification in the 1990s. So um, obviously this economic change within the, the region, you can actually see that as well. But at the same time, uh, we were really fortunate to actually have a tour in Dortmund. Um, and, and the great thing that Dortmund did, in my opinion at least, was to um, combine the, the historic um, areas, uh, specifically, specifically the coal mines, and they reincorporated it into the, in today's culture of the region. So what Vanessa was talking about was that uh, kind of, you can see that kind of pride of being a, a coal mining area uh, in Germany, but uh, basically using that as a way to empower their, their own citizens, their own people, and to empower the own uh, area to basically say, hey, we, we, we are a coal mining region. Um, we're, we're not focusing on that anymore, but we are embracing that kind of history. 
And if I might add what I thought was really interesting about the, the during the coal and steel area and the work of it, education, culture, nature were completely neglected. And with, with the structural reform, you know, that, that changed. And uh, there also there were no universities until 1962. That was the uh, Bochum started its first, received its, its first university. So education was, was not something anybody was interested in until then. And uh, it was just not necessary to even have a, a, a degree or learn a trade during when you went down into the coal mines and and this this sense of creating culture and combining it with with the the steel and coal mine history is is extremely visible and it's very impressive and uh, I think Yasmin is right there this is where the sense of pride comes from that we experienced in in Dortmund. Okay. Uh, and so there I want to uh, switch gears a little bit to um, the question of how this finds its expression in politics. Um, uh, so, uh, Yasmin, maybe I'll turn to you first for, for your uh, observations on, uh, on political attitudes. For me, it was really interesting to get a great presentation by uh, Dr. Ruchula who Vanessa actually mentioned earlier, who is a co-participant in this program. And I mean, obviously I was born and raised in Bonn, the NRW area. It's, it's a bit different from Dortmund, um, but uh, it also used to be the former capital of Germany. So we take huge pride in that. So I understand the local patriotism part of Dortmund a little bit. But if you look at the political attitudes, it's very, very different from Bonn. And it's actually very, very different from the rest of Nordrhein-Westfalia. So um, Dr. Schuler actually did a really great presentation on that and she went into looking at the worries first before we, she went into the political attitudes. So generally there are way higher worries on when it comes to crime uh, trends and individual job situations. Um, also the economic situation for many families is, is a huge issue in the area. Um, and also immigration. I mean, the Ruhrgebiet is known for being an immigration uh, area Specifically, Dortmund is known for being an immigration city um, with all the Gastarbeiter, so the visiting uh, workers coming to the area back then when the area still used to, to do uh, coal mining. Um, so immigration was always a huge, huge debate in that area. So with that in mind, the political attitudes obviously look a little bit different to, to the rest of Nordrhein-Westfalen. Um, there are different problems that you have in the area, specifically when you look at immigration and how the, the area is dealing with immigration. Um, maybe we can talk about that later as well, and Vanessa can, can uh, actually talk about her impressions on that as well. But specifically in Dortmund, for example, and even the entire Ruhrgebiet, you have um, areas that are very, very poor and those who are considered more rich. So. Um, the way even poverty is measured in the Ruhrgebiet isn't necessarily on how much you make uh, or what kind of status, um, education status you have, but more on where exactly you live in the Ruhrgebiet. So there's this divide between the North and the South. Okay. And, and then it, you talked about the worries, um, which I think is a good place to start in, uh, in talking about what motivates people. What are the core concerns that resonate 
um, with uh, with people and then um, find find their way into their political opinions and political allegiances. So if we could if we take that a little bit further, what what uh, what further can we say about um, about the political landscape? Specifically with the economic situation and in, in the background, the back of our minds, the trust is generally very, very low compared to the rest of the uh, Nordrhein-Westphalia. Um, also, the perception is very pessimistic. Um, and general, the overall satis satisfaction with democracy um, is very low. We see that when we look at the voter turnout, um, the voter turnout is generally in the Ruhrgebiet very low compared to the rest of the Nordrhein-Westphalia, rest of the state. And if you look at the votes, you will see that they're very much right-leaning votes. So the AfD, the Alternative für Deutschland, is uh, gaining very much popularity over the last years in that area specifically, although the voter turnout is very low. And one aspect that can actually explain it is the fact that, again, immigration, huge topic in that area. Uh, many people who are actually living in the Ruhrgebiet have some kind of migration history and are not necessarily allowed to vote in that area. So the voter turnout is already very low in um, communities um, who have a migration history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Vanessa. Yeah. So let's uh, let's take that uh, take that a bit further. Um, uh, give us your thoughts. Sure. Yeah. I think um, what's an important piece to this kind of um, you know, understanding of political attitudes is also uh, media consumption. Um, again, from um, Dr. Shula's um, PowerPoint and findings from the research, um, looking at the different types of media being used, um, you know, comparing the whole of Germany to the Ruhr area, um, we see a lot less nationwide TV and public radio, um, a lot more dependency um, on personal conversations. And then I think um, leading in the media usage would be the local TV and radio. So maybe this is a piece of that local identity that um, you know, might, um, might shut off a little bit of the outside opinions or you know, getting the full perspective. And that could also contribute to these um, types of uh, fear and, um, you know, uncertainty towards um, bigger picture and, um, you know, I think that would inform some of that political attitude. Mm -hmm. um, and and can, we, can you say more about uh, uh, media consumption? Because I find that intriguing. Um, uh, certainly um, the, the balance between national and local, between mm -hmm. traditional and, uh, and new media um, uh, these are uh, things that accompany of the many of the, the the fissures in in American society, and it seems like you may have uh, seen so, something quite similar um, in Dortmund as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's not unfamiliar to Americans. Um, you know, seeing polarized news sources or um, more unconventional. Um, quotations around news sources, you know, something that might be shared on Facebook or relying on personal anecdotes, personal conversations. Um, so yeah, I think um, I have a weary approach to that personally. So I think, you know, and, and looking so, and I think national versus regional um, 
just the national piece will help inform that much more um, putting into context and gaining larger perspectives. Um, so I think it just, it does stand out to me seeing that local, um, that local level being the, the strongest. Um, I mean, if I could add one more thing um, that, sure. that actually stood out very much, which uh, was very surprising to me as well, was the fact that um, Facebook, so social media is actually used as a way to, to consume media in the Ruhrgebiet. And it's actually in comparison to, to as nationwide, it's very high as well. But generally, the, the culture in, in the Ruhrgebiet is very much, as I said, very skeptic. So the skepticism can actually be also seen in the way they consume media. And Dr. Ruth Schuler actually made a really, really nice statement here where um, she basically compared the Ruhrgebiet with the rest of Germany and um, basically found that the people in the Ruhrgebiet are more resistant to false statements. And they can't necessarily explain it yet why this is the case. Um, but it's a really nice research question for those who are going uh, into research. To, to pose and to actually answer that question. So what is making people in the Ruhrgebiet more resistant to false statements in comparison to the rest of Germany? Okay, uh, that's, uh, that's intriguing. Um, and, and so you will be spending time later this year um, on a research uh, trip in Buffalo. And so I, I think maybe to kind of bring our uh, conversation um, uh, back around, I'd be interested to hear what, what you will be looking for, what uh, maybe what hypotheses you bring about the comparisons uh, between Germany and the United States, how you uh, expect um, uh, to see these themes repeated or perhaps varying uh, in, in an American post-industrial city. Uh, I, I, let, tell me what, uh, what your expectations are as you, as you at the, are at the midway point of, uh, of this program. Yeah, thanks. I think, um, you know, looking from Dortmund and now into Buffalo, um, my biggest questions are, um, you know, wondering about um, the funding and the projects. So I wonder what Buffalo looks like um, from a local government level, what kind of um, resources they have and um, redevelopment um, city re revitalization projects they might have. Um, I'm really curious about um, this idea of the local city identity, if that um, is also something that um, the people in Buffalo feel um, is important to their identity. Um, and I'm also curious, when we were um, in Dortmund, um, there was the highway Route 40, um, which was the social equator, and so that's where we saw like a very distinct geographical division um, where the North um, was maybe more populated and had less fewer resources and higher immigration populations. In the North and the South, um, you see um, projects like the Phoenix Say, which was a man-made um, lake um, and a huge um, resourced population uh, area where um, you know, lots of revitalization went into that. And there's that stark contrast. So I wonder what kind of um, geographical uh, carvings have been, you know, made in Buffalo to that regard. Yes, me? 
Um, yeah, actually, my what I'm really anticipating for Buffalo is very similar to what Vanessa said, but I'm looking way more into the community involvement, meaning in Germany, uh, in Germany, specifically in Dortmund, we saw that many projects that were uh, implemented were, were very much top down focused. Um, so uh, what I'm looking forward to is to see if Buffalo is doing the same or is rather involving community differently, is involving community in decision making processes, um, but also to see how division looks like in Buffalo. So division in Dortmund obviously looks a little bit different than it will look like in other places. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to see how fragmentation division, but also how um, yeah cohesion looks like in Buff Buffalo specifically. Okay, Susanna, Alpha? Yes, yeah, so I think Buffalo and Dortmund have a lot in common. Buffalo was an important port city on the Erie Canal, especially for grain. I think it's the city's known for, for grain storage and then later became a large railway hub. And then uh, it had to transition as well, similar to Dortmund, and uh, it became, it transitioned to manufacturing at first and steel production became a dominant industry. And then with deindustrialization, the city's economy declined and it developed several other industries. And now I'll be curious to see how this has developed. I think there, They've uh, made strides in uh, different service industries, healthcare, retail, tourism. So it'll be interesting to see how, how they've been able to attract workers, uh, young people, young families. And I think the city has bled uh, population just uh, like Dortmund did. And then also education plays it an important role in Buffalo. It has several universities in the city and uh, surrounding the city. It's a thrive, has a thriving cultural scene. And also what we haven't mentioned yet is sports. So Dortmund has a very famous soccer club, uh, Borussia Dortmund, and that is something of a unifier in the city of Dortmund. And everybody that we've we spoke to really identifies with with the soccer club and I think Buffalo has a similar uh, scene football not soccer but uh, it'll be interesting to find out whether the the pride and the the sense of, of self and belonging extends to sport as well and, and in Buffalo and we did see this in in Akron, Ohio, which was the, the first city of this project that we visited. And of course it has a, a very important, uh, famous basketball player, who, <laughs> uh, LeBron James. LeBron and, James, uh, yes. So, yeah, so sports really play an important role in these cities and uh, that's, something I think is very important for, for all of these places. Okay. Okay. Well, we've talked about, um, you know, the, the challenges of, of low trust, the, the perceptions and uh, anxieties around uh, issues like uh, crime and, uh, and jobs. 
but also about uh, local pride um, and and the the variations, especially when it comes to uh, media and media consumption. So uh, I think these are uh, really tremendous uh, insights, and uh, look forward to hearing the results of your of your uh, the next stage uh, of this project. And so I want to thank uh, Yasmin Alduri and Vanessa Simpson for being with us today. For to Susanna Deeper for leading this project. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners for being with us on this episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.